So last week we began a series called Radical Love, Radical Results, and we're going to continue that for a little while. So settle in. This is going to be a regular one for a couple of months. And uh, the big idea that we're working from in this is that each and every one of us has been loved in radical ways, radical love. Uh, that we've been loved in a really deep and personal way by God, and that it's out of that love that we love others, that we reach out and care for people here, people outside of here, people that uh, come into our path, that it's out of that that we love others, that everything we do is a response to the love that God's given us. And like Bernadette said, today is our fall kickoff for small groups. So that's a pretty great thing. So I am going to talk about small groups. Is that okay? Does anybody love small groups? Do I have any big fans? There we go. We got a few. I like that. I'm a big small group fan. I've led a lot of small groups, uh, some amazing, others that were equally amazing, just in different ways. Sometimes you get some interesting uh, personality mixes in small groups, right? Kind of works some things off of you a little bit. It's good. Uh, I think that Jesus loves small groups. So there's something really important that he does through that space uh, that's really good for us as followers of Jesus. The friendships that are developed, the relationships that happen between people who otherwise probably would never have become friends, that happens a lot in church, right? I think the Holy Spirit likes to move in really personal ways in small groups. And of course, we eat because that's what we do. Christians eat. If you haven't realized that one, that, that is a guarantee in any church. And we're going to be looking at Galatians 6. So if you have a Bible with you, feel free to open up to that. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are a few on the sides and a couple of stations in the back. If you want to grab one of those, feel free. Uh, thank you. Perfect, Rob. Rod. I do that all the time, you guys. Why couldn't you have different names? <laughs> Anyway, but we're going to be looking at Galatians 6, 1 through 3, so if you want to open up to there. And we're going to, talk, we're going to look at some characteristics for small groups that the Apostle Paul gives us in these verses. So let's read it together. Let's read it. Here's what it says. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. So super heavy uh, scriptures, right guys? Just light, easy things that we get to do as followers of Jesus. But I think that there's three important characteristics of community that the Apostle Paul is telling us about here. I think he's showing us that he wants our communities to be places of restoration, places of honesty, and places of love. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning, those three things. Before we get to that, I want to look at this interesting little phrase that's in verse 2, where it says, in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Kind of an interesting thing that we're trying to fulfill here. Well, Paul's original readers, if he would have said, you fulfill the law of Moses, they would have said, okay, I get it. I know what that is. And most of us know what that is too, right? Ten Commandments. 
not to mention the other couple of hundred laws that we find uh, in the first five books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's a pretty serious list that is much larger than what we put on the walls of our uh, courtrooms and uh, other types of buildings. So that's what the law of Moses is. And what's the law of Christ? If you look in the New Testament, in the uh, Gospels, every single Gospel, Jesus repeats this one idea pretty consistently. People ask him, okay, how do you summarize all the laws? Which is really, really hard. How do you summarize 700 laws into one or two? What's the most important? And Jesus always summarizes it down and he goes, two things, love God, love others. That in, it, in a nutshell is the law of Christ. That's what Jesus tells us to do above and beyond all. That's what everything else is a part of. And in John 13, 34 through 35, he says it this way. He says, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Pretty simple, right? I think we get the gist of those verses. He says it three times, love one another. That's what he's getting at there. We say it in a lot of different ways. People inside and outside the church agree with this, right? You don't have to be a Christian to buy into this one. The golden rule. We, people say that all the time. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We have hundreds of nonprofits throughout the U.S. that their whole organizational mission is to do good to various groups of people. We like this. This is something we really value in our culture. We tell people to turn the other cheek even sometimes, which takes it another step. But Jesus, as always, makes it a little bit harder than just that, than just doing good to others. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love others. Loving others in the same way that Jesus loved you. That's a little bit more complex, right? It's a little bit more difficult. That word as in the verse is kind of the linchpin for the whole sentence in the Greek for what Jesus is getting at. And it's used to imply this idea that the love that we give to others is not simply a love that imitates Jesus' love, but that is Jesus' exact love. Love others as I have loved you, not in a way that just looks, smells, and feels like my love, but in a way that is actually my love. Did I lose you yet? How do you love with somebody else's love? How does, how does this work? It's a little complicated. You know, in short, the only way for us to do that is for Jesus to be in us and for us to be in Jesus, literally in each other, flowing back and forth. Our love for each other should work the same exact way that the love of the Trinity works. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for each other and for us. And so I want to talk for a couple minutes on this really complicated idea of the Trinity, if that's okay. It's kind of a slippery slope sometimes. We've created a lot of really bad analogies that are so far off the mark that they're not even true to who God is, but I still want to throw out an analogy. Is that okay? Can I, can I risk that one? Will you give me just a little bit of grace with that? 
This idea that there's three in one and one in three. How does this work? How do they relate to each other? One uh, analogy that I found to be helpful is called, uh, it has a few different names. One's the dance of the Trinity or the divine dance. Uh, The Greek word is perichoresis. And it's not perfect, but I think it's helpful. Uh, And so I want to talk about that. The pastor and author, Tim Keller, really likes that, which makes me feel better. Uh, if If famous people like it, then I feel like I can say it. And here's how he describes this analogy. He says that each of the divine persons of the Trinity center upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And it creates this dynamic dance of joy and love, perichoresis. Notice the root of our word choreography is within it. It literally means to dance or to flow around. So in the relationship of the Trinity, each one of the three are equal. We, we all agree on that one. They're of the same will, the same mind in some way. No one's more important than the other. And all are constantly in this movement of love, de- delighting in one another. And in this dance, each one completely trusts each other. So when Jesus tells us, to love as he loves, to very literally love with his love, he's kind of inviting us in. He's helping us to realize what we've been invited into as followers of Jesus. He's not just spouting nice idealistic statements, but he's inviting us into a new reality that you can love others with the actual love of Jesus. If you've accepted the love of Jesus, if you've chosen to follow him, then when you love others, you are loving with his love. And the love of Jesus is dramatically different from our love. It's selfless. It's full of joy and delight. It constantly serves without thought of repayment. It's kind of no wonder that he said that if you love like that, that everybody else is going to notice it because it's going to look so different from the way that we would love other people on our own, so much more deeply than we would be able to do that on our own. When we say that we're, as followers of Jesus, uh, kind of, we say that uh, we're choosing to follow him, that we're inviting him in, there's this two-way things, this two-way relationship that happens where we are also invited in to that relationship. We're invited into this dance, to the movement of the Trinity that's constantly flowing, constantly moving, full of love. And we are a part of that. I know it sounds out there and kind of crazy, but everything with the Trinity does. It's different. It's other other than. It's a, a whole different way of relating than we do. But in that, we're able to start reflecting something to our world that looks dramatically different than what we expect, which I think leads us back into Galatians 6. So what does a small group that's filled with the love of the Trinity actually look like? How do we live this out? Well, first, it's a place of restoration. 
verse 1 of Galatians 6. If someone's caught in a sin, restore that person gently. You know what's interesting in all of Paul's letters? It's kind of annoying sometimes, honestly, is that Paul has this kind of annoying habit of telling us things that he already expects that we should be doing, that we always read and we're like, oh, that's a really good idea. I like that. Without realizing, oh, he's telling us that we were doing it wrong and we need to actually be doing this in a different way. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here again. He's not saying you should restore people when they're caught in sin. He's saying, when you do this, do it in this way. It should be, it's an expected part of your life together as followers of Jesus. It's a given. And the focal point of this sentence to Paul is that last word in the sentence, gently, which I think is a little surprising to us, maybe. Was that the word that you picked up when I read that? No? Probably caught, sin, maybe restore. Lots of other options that you focused on other than gently. But in the original language, Paul really focuses on this last word. That's kind of the, that's the most important thought that he puts out there, that we are supposed to do this gently. And in that, he points back to the fruit of the Spirit, to what he mentions earlier in Galatians, in Galatians 5, where he tells us uh, the, the characteristics that we'll have if we're following Jesus. And one of them is gentleness. And he's pointing us back there and encouraging us to do this really important work of restoration under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, who always leads us in a certain specific way, with gentleness and with humility. He restores humbly. That's how we're supposed to restore people. All of the churches in the New Testament had big issues. All of them. It's great, right? Makes you feel better. Our issues, they're not so bad. We're okay. All of them had issues. Corinthians was the worst, but I'll leave that for another time. Galatians, one of their issues was this. They had a lot of leaders who got kind of big egos about being the restorers. They were the people that when somebody did something wrong, people would have to come to them and then they'd say that, you know, you know, say the Hail, Hail Mary 40 times, whatever. I don't know what they did, but they restored people. But the problem was that instead of doing that nicely and gently, they were going around and bragging about it to everybody else. So they were going around saying, hey, you guys know what I do in the church? This is what I do. It's very important. If you do something wrong, you have to come through me. I'm the gatekeeper. Everything goes through me. And they were doing it in this really egotistical kind of rude way, instead of welcoming people back in. They weren't gracious with it. It was all about them. And so it's no wonder that when Paul talks about this, that he's saying, guys, you need to remember to do this with gentleness. I know you're doing it, but you need to do it with the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, with the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You're not supposed to judge. Do you know we're never, ever told to judge people for their sin? That's actually not in the New Testament. That's not our job. You know what our job is to do? To restore people. We're not supposed to be the neighborhood watch, walking around with our flashlights, peering in windows late at night, hoping to catch somebody in some act, drinking that one extra glass of wine or whatever it is so we can get them. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're 
never supposed to catch people, but we're supposed to restore people when they have been caught. The Holy Spirit does the catching. We're the follow-up crew. We're the ones that are supposed to bring them back in, to welcome them back into the community. Restoration is all about what happens after the sin comes out. I'm not worried about us sinning because we'll do that plenty well on our own. I'm worried about what happens after that, how we bring people back into community. And our small groups need to be places of restoration. I think this is an important role for small groups, to be places where we come after the Holy Spirit's done the already hard work of detecting and of convicting. We're called to be gentle and humble restorers, welcoming others back in grace and love, joyfully opening the door walking them through the living room, giving them the best seat on the couch or at the table, joyfully and lovingly welcoming them back in. And in that, restoring them back to community. Because each and every one of us is going to need that. We all need to be restored at some point or another because we all sin. We all do something. doesn't matter how small or how big. We all do something that leaves us needing to be restored. So let's create places of restoration. And next, our small groups should be places of honesty. Look at verse 3. It says, If anyone thinks that they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. I kind of love this verse uh, because he doesn't say that you're deceiving other people. Just look at the, the wording. You're deceiving yourselves. The only one you're fooling is you. Everybody else knows what's going on. It's just within your own heart, your own soul, that you need to work this out. Paul's pretty clear about that. You faked yourself out, not other people. I came across a really interesting TED's talk this week by an Australian psychologist named Matthew Hornsey, and his talk was titled, Imposters, the Psychology of Pretending to Be Someone You're Not. Sounds interesting, right, guys? It's well worth the 17 minutes. I'd recommend it. If you like this sort of thing, check it out this week. Uh, it's worth it. What Hornsey talks about is he begins by giving all these examples of people who have faked it. Faked it in various different ways. Uh, some people, uh, there was one uh, woman, um, what was it? I think she was a captain on, a, I think, a pirate ship. And she Everybody thought she was a man. All these interesting, and she got away with it. And the people rationalized how that she was a man for years. Like they have all these examples, all these interesting stories of people faking it so they can do something that they otherwise would not have been able to do. One of the examples is of a guy named Frank Abagnale. Anybody see the movie Catch Me If You Can? Yeah, Beth did. <laughs> a few others. Nice. Uh, I love that movie. It's really interesting. Uh, this guy started kind of innocently enough. He was a high school student that walked into a new school, and the administrators thought that he was a substitute. So they gave him the French class, and off he went. Life as you know it changed. He figured out that he was really, really good at faking it. And so he continued, and he did it in uh, pretty uh, luxurious ways. He traveled the world. He pretended to be a pilot, a doctor, and a lawyer. He didn't just go for like a banker or like, you know, there was, there's easier levels of things, but that's what he went for. All before 21, pretending to do these things before he got caught. 
And he's this really charming, innovative, creative guy that the whole time you're kind of like, I kind of want to be him. <laughs> that would be really cool. I don't want to like the consequences, but being him would be nice. That, that's kind of fun. Faking it for a little bit doesn't sound so bad, right? And I think in Hornsey was saying like, this is kind of the trickiness of imposterism, as he calls it. That there is this kind of a little edge of it that we constantly look at and we're like, this actually doesn't sound so bad. I wonder if I could get away with this. They're these truly interesting people that we enjoy learning about. We're intrigued by the thrill of possible shortcuts, aren't we? We like being able to, to skip getting a master's degree to get the job that we want to get or whatever it is. People fake their resumes all the time. We do it in these really low-key ways, too. We smile when we're not happy. Anybody do that one? You uh, fake confidence when you're actually nervous. Sometimes we even pretend that we're interested in something and that we're listening when we're not, which hopefully no one's doing that right now. <laughs> and Hornsey says that there's this really thin line that separates imposterism from impression management or even social skill. And for some people, it turns into this way to cope with anxiety to continue to make something that they feel like they're faking. They attribute their success to uh, lots of other things other than their own talent and amount of time that they put into it, such as luck and timing. They live their life feeling like they're constantly on the brink of this really great shame that if somebody just pulls back one layer, that they're going to realize that they're a fake and everything's going to come crashing down. And in the end, it makes it really, really hard for them to ever feel like they can show who they truly are. Sometimes it makes it hard to even remember who they actually are. It's so covered up. Hornsey says that we're intrigued by imposters, not because we want to be like them, but because we worry that we are them. And I think there's a level of that that it, he, I think he hits on something really true in our society that there is a level of faking it that we do on a pretty regular basis as Americans, and especially as middle-class Americans, that there's this drive to always keep up with appearances instead of allowing people to see who we really are. This worry of what will happen if people see who we really are. Stanley Grins is a theologian. He says that the Christian life is not an individual struggle for perfection, but it is, in an important sense, a community project. You know, I, I can guarantee that every single person here struggles with feeling like we fail. We're not perfect. You know, whether it's something we do, something our spouse does, something our kids do, something that happens at work that we don't want to make to church, something that happens at church that we don't want to make to work, whatever it is. There's different areas in our life that we struggle with being completely honest and open about because we're worried about the repercussions, about what will happen if that comes out. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that Christians have made is mistaking following Jesus for living life in the exact same way that Jesus lives his, for living a perfect life. You know, Jesus never calls us to live perfect life, lives because he knows that we can't. 
That's not our calling. Our calling isn't to exactly be 100% Jesus. It's to be in relationship 100% of the way with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to journey with Jesus, not to try and strive to become him so that one day, years from now, we'll be able to look in the mirror and our face will no longer be here and his will be. Because that's not reality. That's not what's going to happen. But when we are in relationship with Jesus, he starts to shine out in really amazing ways. But it doesn't take away who we are. We're not the problem in this. Him becoming more of us is the answer in it. We need spaces where we can feel safe to take off our masks. Where we can be completely honest with each other and not be afraid of what's going to happen if we are. And I think in that we have a great calling as the church to create those types of spaces, to create spaces of honesty where masks can come off, where honesty can be what's known, and where we can allow ourselves to be who we truly are. And you know, who we truly are isn't how we failed. We are truly, simply people who are loved by God and by others. And in that, we can embrace each other well in the church. And lastly, small groups are to be places of love. Kind of full circle back to what we talked about with the Trinity. Verse 2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Richard Foster is an author, and he wrote that love is most perfectly fulfilled when we bear the hurts and the sufferings of each other weeping with those who weep. Can we learn to lift the sorrows and pains of others into the strong, tender arms of Jesus so that our burden is lighter? Of course we can. Jesus will be our teacher. Love is most perfectly fulfilled when we bear the hurts and sufferings of each other. I was thinking about this idea this week and was reminded of a small group experience that I had about 10 years ago in a group that I led. Uh, it was a really big group. It was like 35 to 50. So some might, <laughs> that's bigger than our church plant was. So there you go. Um, it was huge. And it stayed that way for several years. Uh, it had lots of different personalities, outgoing, introverted, socially aware, some extremely not socially aware, uh, which made it all the more fun at times. All kinds of people that were there. And my roommates and I uh, hosted the group as well as led it, so that was fun. Nothing like guys hosting a group for 50, right? A bunch of bachelors. that make any, anybody nervous in the room? It was okay. And so one night, my friend Adam came up to me, and uh, he said that a new guy in, in the group, um, I think it was his first time there, uh, that he was living out of his car. And so Adam said to you guys, we... We didn't have a room, that, that was for sure, but do you have a couch that he can sleep on? So I quickly grabbed my roommates and uh, we talked it over and invited him to, to stay at the house for a couple of weeks, which turned into a few months as things like this do. And this guy's name was John Paul. And he had a really mixed relationship with the church. Uh, he had kind of been in and out a little bit. He had tried, uh, it was kind of amazing the amount of times that he had tried and that he kept leaving, feeling like he was just not welcomed. 
And then he would come back. And he just kept doing this. So living with Christians was interesting for him. Uh, not to mention having small group at his house kind of forced him to engage with it a little bit. We talked about Jesus a lot with him. We would pray with him. Uh, we tried to invite him into our life as much as possible. And we really saw the Holy Spirit move in his life. And one day I came home from work and uh, John Paul was really, really distraught. He uh, told me that he had just found out that one of his former partners uh, was HIV positive, and he was rightly worried. And so we prayed, and we got everybody else to pray for him. Uh, he had a test for it a couple of days later, and he went and came back, and it was positive. And so he was, he was destroyed, honestly. Uh, homeless, health issues, it, it, it was pretty bad. So we just kept praying with him. We told the small group, invited them to pray with him. The Sunday after we found out uh, his test results, about 15 of us guys went up after church and just kind of huddled up here, arms around each other, praying for him. He wasn't there. Uh, as far as I know, he doesn't know that we ever did this, um, which was pretty okay. But we just prayed for him for a while. Every single one of us was crying, uh, just asking God to move in his life. We saw, you know, it's like we had been seeing Jesus move and then this hits. You know, when, when those types of things hit, what, what happens often? Uh, it's kind of the last straw. So we were just praying for him, praying that, that the Holy Spirit would move. A couple of days later, he got a call from the clinic asking him to come back in. Uh, he didn't tell us about this. And so when I got home that day, uh, he was really happy and fidgety, um, which was different. Um, and uh, one of my roommates told me to go talk to him. I uh, said he has some news. And he said that he had gone back to the clinic that day, and there were two tests that he had taken the first time. One was accurate something like 98% of the time. The other was accurate 100% of the time. 98% in most cases is obviously enough, right? So he had gone back and the doctor had sat him down and kind of, uh, just kind of coldly said, well, the first one wasn't right and you're completely healthy. If nothing's wrong with you, you're good to go. And then just walked out of the room. And then he, so he leaves and he told me, he's like, Stephen, I went in my car and all I could do, he's like, I couldn't drive. I couldn't go anywhere. I just sat in my car and just kept saying, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He said, I knew in that moment who had done something. And I knew it wasn't me. There was only one answer to that. When our small groups are places of love, places where we really carry each other's burdens, where we take on each other's loads, praying with each other, helping out where we can. When we do the, those types of things, when we show that we are partakers in the tremendous love and unique relationship of the Trinity, something powerful starts to happen. People aren't worried about just caring about themselves. They start to realize that they do have time to care for other people because they know that those other people in turn are caring for them. That there's this mutual caring that's going on between each other. 
and people's lives are impacted. No way around it. Brian and the worship team wants to come back up. As we end, Andy Stanley is a pastor, and he once said that as important as it is for each follower of Christ to give and experience this unique kind of relational life, the benefits go beyond ourselves. They influence a watching world. We want our small groups, our church, to be places of restoration, honesty, and love. Because it's good for us, and it is. But also because it's good for the world. It's good for people who haven't already experienced what we've experienced, who don't know Jesus. When we love in those kind of dramatic ways, those selfless ways that look so different from what everybody else sees, it shows. And people start to grasp a hold of that. We want it because we want everyone to follow Jesus. We want everyone to know who Jesus is through his love. And so this is my invitation to you as we go into a time of worship. Live lives that are marked by radical restoration, by honesty and transparency, and by fully engaging in the love of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you're living alone, stop it. Do it with others. Invite people in. Open your door. Walk into other people's doors and start following Jesus together because that's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to do this life. Amen.